Turn, if you would, of course, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to start reading at uh, verse 17 and read through the end of chapter 2 as I did last week. And we're really focusing up on this part of the passage or part of the letter because of the fact that it uh, com contrasts and compares man's wisdom to the true wisdom of God. But beginning in verse 17, it says, For Christ sent uh, me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of, or not, excuse me, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For preaching uh, of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of, his, of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is uh, stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and things despised, which are, uh, and things which are despised. Hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Christ, uh, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world, that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that uh, are freely given unto us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, 
But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity to once again be together to worship you this afternoon. And Lord, what a wonderful day it is to be gathered with your people. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Now, just quickly again to remind us, we're talking, uh, Paul's writing a letter to true believers that are immature in their faith. They're acting in a fleshly uh, manner. Uh, They're presenting a false uh, picture to the world uh, of the value of Jesus Christ and who he truly is. And as a result of that, there are divisions that exist among them. And uh, the result of that, the true believers, uh, in addition, were failing to appreciate and comprehend the fullness of blessings that they had as a result of their uh, faithful calling of God into the fellowship of his sons, uh, of his son, I should say, not plural, of his son, Jesus Christ, uh, their Lord. Now, the last time I looked at uh, verses uh, 17 through 19, and that really began uh, part of this letter where there's a lengthy criticism of human wisdom or a contrast and a comparison of human wisdom to divine wisdom. And we're going to continue of that because much of the contents of Paul's letter here to the Corinthians uh, is uh, addresses that matter, and it's highly scathing toward the subject of human wisdom. And that's something that is very much uh, needed to be criticized. Human wisdom is not God's wisdom. They're not equivalent. They never will be. But people don't like hearing their own viewpoints uh, put down. You know, we're supposed to affirm them, but it really doesn't work that way because reality, big R reality, is God and the way God thinks. Not how we think and interpret it uh, wrongly, but how we understand it as is pointed out in the, in the section of the letter by the Spirit of God as how things really are. Because verse 19, where we left off last week, said, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So in reality, our ability to understand things apart from God are absolutely worthless. They're going to be destroyed in the end. Uh, they're going to be brought to nothing. And again, he's not talking about wisdom, uh, that we're not to have wisdom. He's talking about the enticing words of man's wisdom, uh, which uh, we're addressing here. So God despises the enticing words of man's wisdom. He is not impressed with it at all. God doesn't sit up in heaven and think, man, that was really smart that what that person thought of. Maybe I should consider that. That's never been a conversation God's had with himself, nor will it be. But it will be a wonderful day uh, when man's wisdom is gone. It will be quite lovely. Imagine when you no longer have to have even a shadow of anything we're thinking uh, involved in our reality, so to speak. Uh, We will be like-minded. We'll have the same love. We'll be of one accord of mind, as Philippians 2.2 talks about. It will be a perfect symphony of the divine and humanity together. That'll be wonderful. And by the way, when it talks about being in one accord, that's exactly what the verbiage is there. There'll be a symphony when we're in one accord. 
uh, that's the word it would trace back to. So there'll be no more heartache, no more pain, no more divisions among humanity, no more wars, no more tears. Stupidity will be utterly wiped out once and for all. And I'm sure my wife will be glad about that in relationship to me because, um, you know, she won't have to put up with some of the stupid things I do. But anyway, uh, but a pure existence will be what we have that'll be even greater than what existed in the garden uh, even before the fall. So since Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he spends such an extended period amount or an extraordinary amount of time bashing and diminishing the foolish moronic thinking of men, I think I'd be pretty negligent or we would be pretty negligent and unwise to just quickly pass through uh, these thoughts so we can move on and actually say, oh, I want to see what's in it for me. Well, this is what's in it for us. And we have to realize that it's a humiliating thing that we have to deal with. We have to learn to deal with our human wisdom, our sinful human wisdom, and, and, and uh, come to grips with it so we know how to deal with it. Now, in my opinion, in verse 20, which is where we'll start this afternoon, uh, is there's a slight mocking tone. Maybe it's not, but Paul says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And so these are sharp bobs of, uh, or barbs, I should say, of provocation toward the enemies of God for sure. And they're certainly aimed at those uh, deemed by the world as the elite of the intellectual realm, especially uh, the Jewish religious world. And we do have to realize there are people that are esteemed highly out here in the world for their intellectual prowess, the, their ability to be able to present arguments and sometimes they're not, they're not saved, but they can make some pretty uh, uh, powerful arguments uh, in their own right, even though they're not correct. But to some degree, these, same qu these questions here, to some degree, can be aimed at every member of mankind uh, that has ever had a single minute trace of thought that we too could be God. Okay? So that's all of us. At some time, we have thought we too could be God. Now you say, well, I don't think I've ever thought that way. Have you ever sinned against God? Then you have thought you too could be God. So unless you're going to say, no, no, I don't ever remember sinning. Okay, well then uh, you too are in trouble with the elite of the uh, intellectuals there. But anyway, um, we have to realize that it comes down to this as simple as it was for when Adam and Eve uh, believed when the serpent told them you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what, who, but a foolish person, a man, could think that they could become God? Now, I'm not trying to load everything over on Adam because if any one of us had been in the garden, we would have fallen prey probably a lot quicker than Adam did uh, to the same uh, type of thinking. But Adam thought uh, he could believe himself to be as wise as God and capable of being God while standing before God as a creature. Now, this is somewhat, you have to understand my sarcastic sense of humor. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, Adam, didn't you realize that you were created and your God is not created? I mean, I'm not sure how he didn't connect the lines here, the dots, um, and I never will. Uh, and again, I'm not making fun of him because he probably lasted longer than I would ever do it. But he was a creature made by God, placed in uh, into God's creation, uh, this world by God. So in this case, Adam did not understand one plus one. Uh, 
he was coming up with some other answer, uh, but it certainly wasn't two in that case. It was as plain as the nose on Adam's face, faith that nothing could, could come from his rebellion, his sin against God. And there's nothing good that can, can come of our sin, ever. Nothing, absolutely nothing. No matter what we think of, we have to be lined up with what God has for us uh, as, as his creatures. Now, uh, Paul's word here uh, is not a criticism against the godly that are intellectually gifted. And there are those as well. People that are of the faith who can make excellent arguments uh, on, on behalf of, uh, of the scriptures. And, and that's not what he's arguing against. He's not saying, well, we should never go to college. We should never learn anything. We just should be ignorant and move forward. Sometimes this is a little bit of a problem for people if you wind up uh, trying to present something higher. Well, I'm just a humble old guy who doesn't need to know anything. Well, when we get deeper into this letter, we're going to find out we're supposed to be prepared to judge angels. You know, Tim was talking about judging in the right vein. That's part of the problem. We are terrible at judging because we don't learn it from the Word of God. We're sinful in our judging a lot of times, when in reality, we ought to be good judges. Should we not? Um, th that's how it should work. I know somebody who uh, had some work done at their house by a professing believer and uh, this is a good application, and I may repeat it later, but they had enough judgment to know because this person had strung them along for a year, this business owner, and had not fulfilled their commitments on the work that they were supposed to do on their house. And so what happened was uh, he went back to the individual uh, who was a woman business owner and, and uh, told her, he said, look, he said, first of all, I've been trying to get this corrected for a year. I paid you guys $7,000 to perform this work that you've not completed, um, and $7,000 for what they needed to do to complete. And, and, and he said, I need you to complete the work. Well, they kept stringing him along, and he finally said this. He said, I need to go before your church, and I need to address this with them. You know what her next words were? Oh, oh don't do that. Let's go ahead and get this fixed. Now, was that rendering good judgment? Yes, it was, because now this woman who was a professing believer, and from her response, I would take her that, you know, she was someone not doing the right thing who was a believer. I have no idea who this woman is. I just know the story, but she did respond in a right way, and you know what she did? She fulfilled her commitment. That's the way it's supposed to be handled. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's what the, Corinthian, uh, the letter to the Corinthians will teach us later on. So we have to understand that, that God's not upset with us being intelligent and rendering judgment and being intellectually sound. Uh, he wants us to be like that. Uh, so, so we have to understand that. So absolutely we need to understand that uh, the wisdom of Adam and eating of the tree and the garden was foolish for everybody in eternity to see. You cannot go back and say, boy, that was a good decision on any level. There was none. Okay, so in verse 21, why was this so? Well, it reveals the answer. It says in verse 21, it says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believed. Now, what this means is that God had a wise plan even prior to the foundation of the world. 
And despite man's great intellectual giftedness, which he had in particular in the garden as a result of being made in the image of God, and then subsequently throughout the remainder of our history, which man does have a great intellect. I'm not going to dismiss it in the wrong sense, uh, but in, in general. But not one man has ever been able to or ever will be able to discover God on his own. Not one man. Not even Adam. Adam failed. Cain failed. Uh, the intelligent folks that decided to build the Tower of Babel failed. Uh, if you come over to the New Testament, the Magi, they were supposed to be wise men, right? Could they find Jesus without some help from God? No, the answer is absolutely not. They, they had uh, uh, several prompts from God. Now, if you would, turn over to Job chapter 11. And I'm going to have you look at uh, verses 7 through 12. And this is a uh, segment uh, of... of some uh, information that Job's friend Zophar uh, is doing to explain uh, or the wisdom regarding or, or, or speaking very wisely in regards to God's greatness and glory contrasted with man's vanity and folly. Now this is going to be scathing, okay? So get ready to take a hit here as a, as a human. It says, canst thou by searching find out God? That's a good question. Can we really find out by searching on our own? Now, this is what he's talking about. Can you merely by putting on your scientific lab coat and doing evidence that demands a verdict, which was a book that was popular back in the day uh, by a, a, a Christian author, uh, that you were supposed to be able to take the Word of God and definitely come and just read it without the Holy Spirit and come to a conclusion through mankind wisdom that you can't deny there's a God? Well, that's not possible. That's what Zophar is saying right here. He's saying, can you really, by searching, find out God? Can thou find out the Almighty into perfection? In other words, can you understand every measure there is about God to where you're absolutely an expert and you know uh, Latin uh, zero knowledge when it comes to being able to explain God? No. That's his answer to that question. Uh, verse 8 says, it is as high as heaven what, what canst thou do? In other words, it's beyond our reach. It's deeper than hell. What canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea, which, by the way, is a beautiful way maybe to uh, communicate transcendence to people. It's beyond the measure of the earth. If he cut off or if he shut up or he gathered together, then who can hinder him? Who can stop God? The answer is nobody. That's what he's saying to these questions. For he knoweth vain men now what he means there is he knows how empty-headed men are god knows how empty-headed how how completely devoid of of uh divine wisdom we are by in and of ourselves he seeth wickedness also uh will he not then consider it for vain man would be wise though man born like a wild ass's colt um or though man be born like a wild ass's cult. Now, what he's saying there is that man uh, was created in the fullness of the image of God, but man foolishly emptied himself through his sin. This is what Adam did. He emptied himself of that exalted state. He impoverished himself and all of humanity that followed after him and becoming a creature with nothing of value in him. That's what it means for man to be empty-headed. We have nothing of value in and of ourselves. 
It's all associated back to God. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, reflects this a little bit, I think, or echoes this, I should say. In Romans 7, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Well, he didn't think he could. But he goes on, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so how was Paul looking to be delivered? Through himself, through his knowledge, through his intellect? No, he was looking for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to deliver him from this situation that Adam had put him in. And that's what we're all looking toward. God didn't create man with the intent to introduce mankind uh, to the world and boast upon his, our intelligence. That's not why man was created. Uh, and all creation would look and say, boy, man is something. Man is great. Man is full of glory. That's not why we, he was created. God created man, and I'm convinced of this, so that Jesus Christ could be introduced to, the, to us. The Son of God, that's the person who is deserving of all the glory, not us. And that was never God's intention for Adam to be glorified. Not even in the beginning. It was never he was going to say, now I'm going to let Adam discover me all on his own, and he too shall be God. That is not a possibility. That was never the, poss uh, the possibility. So the whole plan there that's playing out allows us to see that. And it's through Christ and Christ alone that we have the ability and blessings of knowing God and being abundantly blessed by our creator to the point that the blessings that we have are what? Pressed down and overflowing. Now, pastor mentioned he was happy this morning. Well, that's great. He's joyful. So am I. So is every believer I know who knows Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and who really knows the Lord, who's mature in that faith because you know what you have. If you just go back and reread the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you'll be amazed to see what you have in Christ because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I'm not going to go back there and do that for this time, but they are such magnificent blessings that we are loved and blessed by God as his children. It's incredible. Not only can we not adequately describe it like we might want to at times, we can't even think about all of it. We can't even comprehend it all. In no measure can man glory in himself over his discovery of God. Now, a lot of times you'll hear seekers, and that was something that was going around, I think, a little bit more popularly in years past. But there are, you'll, you'll sometimes hear pastors who will sort of indulge the, indulge the idea of there being seekers, people who are coming to seek out God. Well, this is what's happened in our, in, in, our, in our nation in particular. I don't know about around the world, but I hear a lot of good, godly pastors who, because they want to uh, entertain the thinking uh, and be compassionate like the situation we've mentioned lately, um, they think, you know, it's going to be really good if I adopt that language and say, you know what, uh, Paul, you, you are really are on your own seeking God. That's amazing. Nobody... I have ever known has ever sought God. But Paul comes today, and in and of himself, apart from Jesus, he has joined our congregation and told me he is seeking Jesus. That's ludicrous. That is anti-biblical to the healed. And you say, but you'll make Paul feel bad. He might not come back and visit. Well, I don't care about Paul's feelings in that respect. I care about the Word of God primarily. 
I, I, I need to, as Pastor was alluding to, uh, we need to be communicating truth. None of us were looking for God. Okay? None of us. You weren't looking for God. Now, it's pretty easy for a guy like me to know that because God actually sent a witness to me, or I wouldn't have been looking for God at all, and I'm thankful that he did. But it was only after God sought us out and saved us that we began to seek after him. So it's a very foolish person who contradicts God and his wisdom by thinking uh, they had anything to do with their redemption. And there's a simple verse, and we're all familiar with it, Romans 3, 10, and 11, as is written. Now get this. Listen to these first three words, or four words. As it is written. You know where it's written? In the more sure word of prophecy. So we're absolutely sure these are true. There is none righteous, no, not one. And then verse 11. It says right here in the King James translation, there is none that understandeth. In other words, everybody's empty-headed when it comes to knowledge of God. There is none, and that word none is a 100% term, none, not one person, not ever, that seeketh after God. So which is true? Are there seekers out there? No. There are no seekers out there of God. That one and one here equals two. There are no seekers. First Corinthians one thirty one then is back backs this up. That as according as it is written, again in the holy word of God, inspired word of God, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. So who are we to glory in? Ourselves for being super smart or God for being who he is? The wisdom of God. That's exactly where we're supposed to glory. So uh, where are these two statements written? Like I said, they're written in the scripture. Now the passage then begins to speak to the main two people groups of the world as far as God is concerned in the days of the New Testament or in this particular instance. Uh, in verse 22 down through verse 24, it says, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we can make a sermon of this particular uh, few sets of, or, or few verses here uh, in their own right, but I'm going to summarize them for this afternoon. So the first group that we want to look at is the Jews, and we want to look at that uh, the statement, for the Jews require a sign. Okay? Well, that's a statement regarding the Jew, uh, Jews that reveals a lot of stuff, but the chief point that we want to get is this group of humanity believed uh, in the fact that there was one God who was the creator of all. So that was their culture. You didn't have to go around and convince the Jews that God, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, okay? You weren't having that argument with them. They were fine by that. They actually got that. They would agree with it just like we think about it today uh, in the church or in a, in a good Bible-believing church. A person doesn't have to look, uh, doesn't look for a sign uh, from God, guess what? Unless he thinks God is real. So they were looking for a sign from a living God who they knew. So there was no doubt that this is what you're dealing with. And we, we can understand uh, some about their beliefs. You can see further proof uh, regarding the Jewish beliefs. And we're not going to turn over there for time's sake. If you go read Acts chapter uh, 2 and you observe the manner of preaching done among them by Peter uh, uh, at Pentecost... 
uh, you'll just see he just jumped right into the scriptures and started preaching at them. Well, why was he able to have that liberty? Because they knew the scriptures. And so he didn't have to start and try to convince them that there was a living God. He knew his audience. Therefore, the criticism uh, here in this statement for the Jews require a sign is not that it was unreasonable for them, uh, the Jews, to want to see a sign from God. That's not what the criticism is. After all, the Jewish religion was founded upon the expectation that the God that they worshipped would show them signs and prove himself to them and manifest his mission unto them throughout history. Uh, Exodus uh, chapter 4, when Moses was dealing before Pharaoh, uh, it says, And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe thee, neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, uh, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken unto thy voice, that thou shalt take of the water of the river and pour it upon the dry land, and the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. Now you see there, that's just one instance of where the Jews were used to seeing God show signs. So that's a legitimate request in the, in, in the overall sense. So it would be unreasonable for us to sit here and think that what Paul is teaching about that the Jews just need to stop expecting to see signs from God because that was not what he's criticizing here. It, it, they're not going to follow after a God who doesn't provide them with signs. So then the criticism here is that God in Christ and throughout Christ's earthly ministry had produced even greater signs than he did in the Old Testament. Did he not? Some of the things he did, water and the wine, uh, the healing of the lame and the halt and the sick, uh, the, the control over uh, natural phenomenon, et cetera, et cetera. He did all these plainly out in public, and guess what they were? Signs. They were signs that God had performed before his people and before the Gentiles, the, the Greeks, so everybody could see it. Everybody heard about it. It wasn't under a rock. There was nothing hidden about what he was doing. But guess what? The signs that God had given to the Jews and to the world weren't, uh, weren't the particular signs that the Jews themselves wanted to see. Yeah, I appreciate what you did, God, but that's not really what I'm looking for out of you. What I'm really looking for out of you is stuff that is going to suit me. You know, I need you to perform signs that are up to my spec, my standard, my understanding. Uh, you know, I'm not going to put up with this chintzy stuff of you calming the sea what does that do to improve my life you know if you cared about me you become a king and you defeat my enemies and you'd enrich me now that's the kind of sign i need to see god and that's exactly what the jews were looking for so this is the criticism based upon their own desires and we see this in matthew chapter 12 verses 38 and 39 it says then certain of the scribes and of the pharisees answered saying master now, that's a very respectful term. Boy, you know, they were going to butter him up. They were going to outsmart Jesus and by, by uh, flattering him. Master, we would see a sign from thee. Really? You haven't seen any signs from Jesus so far? Well, they had. But Jesus answered and he said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given it. But the sign of the prophet of Jonah. So he had his own plan. 
God's plan was to show these people the signs he needed or wanted them to see, not what they wanted to see. But so what they wanted to do was they were wanting to make God into an idol, an idol that would obey their whims, and then they would be uh, willing to worship uh, God. Now you may say, well, that's completely foreign. Really? How many times do you see people who are unwilling, who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're willing to follow Jesus as long as Jesus fits their agenda, can meet their calendars, can, can serve their purposes. Boy, I love that Jesus. That's a great, Jesus just loves me. And they'll sometimes refer to it like this. I got my Jesus and you've got your Jesus. Uh, well, no, I don't have my Jesus. My Jesus is right here. This is all I know about Jesus. I can't go beyond the written word, which comes up later in chapter four of this same letter. We can't exceed the word written word. So we have to realize that this is the stumbling block. Jesus was the stumbling block of the Jews on their pathway to God. They were willing to accept God as the creator. That was no problem. They were willing to understand the transcendency of God, that he was not man. But boy, they didn't like it when God didn't do what they wanted them to do. Jesus didn't come and he wasn't the type of Messiah they were expecting. And if you go and read their writings to this day, guess who they're looking for? The Messiah. <laughs> they're still waiting for the Messiah. And you're like, yeah, he, he's already come. He's not coming again. It's not a future events, but if you read Jewish writings, you will see today they are still looking for their Messiah. So that's not how this works. Um, and we have to be careful about that. Now, uh, if you think about what I covered last time or what I mentioned last time about Martha, did she not approach Jesus in the same way? And she was a believer. Lord, don't you care? Well, you see the, the same type of respect, false respect to Jesus, sometimes is given by Christians. You know, if we mean he is Lord, then guess what he is? He is Lord. He is sovereign. And that has something to do with how we function in life. I, how I live my life and what I say out there when I'm not in this building among you people, among this congregation, I, I have to count to God. It's something I have to be... As a parent, as a, as a father, as a, as a husband, et cetera, et cetera, as a neighbor, I have to do this because he is actually my master and I have to follow his plan, not my own. And that's very important to understand. We have to understand that. Now, are we sometimes guilty of lip service to God or to Christ? Probably. And the Corinthians certainly were at the time uh, that Paul uh, was writing this letter to them. Then the second group here are the Greeks, and that's also an entire message if you wanted to go that route. But the Greeks, the non-Jews, uh, who it said in here on this passage, unto whom the preaching of the message of Christ was foolishness. Now the very thing that God said that human thinking was, was the very same thing that the Greeks were saying divine wisdom was, foolishness, uh, empty-headedness. You know, who would believe that kind of rot? And, and, and in all honesty, I mean, if you think about it from a worldly perspective, uh, nobody films a movie where the hero of the movie gets defeated by being uh, uh, killed. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Uh, and coming back later, resurrecting from the dead, that's kind of an unusual approach uh, to be able to present victory to the world. But it's not a worldly plan, so... Uh, anyway, uh, it was ridiculous. Well, why was that? Well, in summary, 
It's because the Greeks uh, were basically represented by Stoics and Epicureans. Again, you can turn over to Acts 17 to see those two groups mentioned as a culture. And they really didn't believe in a creator God as testified in the scripture. So when you go into Acts chapter 17 and you read the message that was presented to them by Paul on Mars Hill, Paul started where? All the way back to the creator. Now the reason he did that was because they didn't really believe in the creator. So he had to start there with the creator and, and, and preach about the creator before he could get him up to the, before he could get the group to understand anything about the savior coming from the creator. Uh, and when he got there, that was about the end of the conversation. So they did not see a divine purpose. The Epicureans uh, in the days of Christ taught that everything on the earth uh, had directly evolved from the material of the earth itself. Now let me repeat that. Everything on the earth had directly evolved from the existing material of the earth itself. Now does anybody think they've ever heard that Hmm? Well, that's not an Epicurean thought. Well, it is an Epicurean thought, but it's also what? It, it, it's an evolutionary thought. So what they did, they didn't see, uh, you know, when the earth was out form and void back in Genesis chapter 1, that they didn't get that, oh, God purposefully mentions that it's without form or void because he's going to put purpose, he's going to infuse it with its meaning. He's going to infuse creation with its meaning. So what the Epicurean says, well, man, I don't get why there's any meaning. There's no creator. So why does male and female have anything to do with actually being male and female? Do we see that going on today? Because we're dealing with a bunch of Epicureans out there and Stoics, okay, mostly Epicureans, people who are caught up in sensuality. Um, and that is they wanted to pursue all kinds of pleasure, good food, good drink, sexual pursuits, uh, entertainments of all kinds that provided one happy experience after another. I just want to go live. I don't want to be caught up in this thing where I'm so restricted by this God. I just want to go have pleasures and experiences of life. I don't want to miss life by worshiping God. Well, is that not a foolish thought that you're going to miss life? You know, you're not going to miss your life. You're going to find your life is what the Bible teaches us, right? <coughs> so... That's what's going on. Sensuality of these type uh, were the totality of why man existed according to Epicurean thinking. It's very similar to what the Corinthians were thinking. And it's very simple, uh, sim uh, similar, I should say, to what American consumerism promotes. Okay? Our culture is a consumer Gimme, gimme, gimme. I just need some more. I need experiences. It's about me. What's this going to be in? What's in it for me? Why am I serving God? I just need to hear what's in it for me. I got a lot of stuff going on out here. You got to tell me something that's going to be a win-win for me and God. Well, it may not be that you win anything. You're going to win the Lord. You're going to know him. But it doesn't mean you're going to get a million dollars, Joel. Okay? So... We have to realize that. Then on the other hand were the Stoics. And you can also see them over in uh, Acts 17 later. They were emotionally reserved pantheists, uh, individuals who believed nature revealed God, which was a correct assumption on their part, and that this natural revelation suggested there were many possible manifestations 
of God. That's where they went wrong. Because guess what? No man can think their way through and figure out God. And that's what the Stoics were. Now the Stoics were probably a little bit more methodical than the Epicureans. But they were still wrong. They, they thought that whoever God was, he also came from creation's materiality. Uh, in short, that's a summary of what they believe. But both beliefs, uh, and, and, which was the majority of Greek culture, were evolutionary and non-transcendent regarding the nature of the gods. Now, when we think about evolution, who do we think about discovering evolution? Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin did not discover evolution. He repackaged it, he renamed it, he rebranded it, and he became known for it in the modern era, but he really did not start it. Uh, it starts back uh, in, in uh, Genesis after the fall, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> not even the Greeks, the Epicureans and the Stoics uh, started it. The point here is that the Greek culture did not believe in a personal infinite God who transcends creation while simultaneously being responsible for and upholding the creation. So any realistic ideas about the one true God was completely missing from their heads. They were empty-headed, just like Zophar said that they were. Because Zophar had the knowledge of the biblical God, he was the creator, and that's what he was getting to and what we have to understand. But we come to our conclusion, and it really is a conclusion of just a couple of lines here, which is out of this very passage. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So where do we get our wisdom and our knowledge from God? And if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you don't get your wisdom out of your head. Okay? You get your wisdom from the scriptures. You get your wisdom from God. So that's the important thing of it, and we'll pick up there next time. And that's a beautiful thing to know that we have the written word of God and we get our wisdom from God because when you delve into that, that's when you really begin to discover your life. That's when you really get to understand the blessings and the meaning of why you exist and what you're to do for the Lord. So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to have this time to speak about your greatness and your goodness uh, Lord, I am feeble and frail and capable of communicating uh, clearly the things that I need to. But Lord, through, the, through your word and the presentation of your word and your spirit, Lord, we can rest assured that uh, the word of God won't return void. And I am so thankful, Lord, that you care for us as you do, that you have blessed us as you have outlined here in 1 Corinthians as you did those uh, uh, fellow saints of so many uh, decades ago. Uh, Lord, we're thankful that we have so much to look forward to in Christ and help us to be your servants in a dark time. Help us, Lord, to learn. Help us to repent of our own understanding and wisdom and help us to apply uh, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of our Creator, the wisdom of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.